Hey, this is Cody Turner. I'm still here at Duke University. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my teaching assistant for the ethics class I'm currently teaching, Nick Canelli. Nick is a rising senior in his undergraduate studies, and he intends on applying and going to graduate school in philosophy. And I think that's a good idea. As you'll see, Nick is extremely knowledgeable with respect to philosophy and the history of philosophy, and he really just has a mind for philosophy, you might say. So I have no doubt that at some point he will become a professor of philosophy. I won't attempt to summarize all of the topics Nick and I touch here. It is really a wide-ranging conversation. We begin by talking about ethics, Kantianism versus utilitarianism. We talk about the foundations of morality. And then we also talk about personal identity, modality, and a handful of other subjects as well. And it was a really fascinating conversation. So without further preamble, I present to you, Nick Canelli. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. And we're live. I'm here with my friend Nick Canelli, my teaching assistant for Duke TIP. We'll just say co-teacher, though. I like that better. So we'll see where the conversation... First of all, thank you for coming on. Yeah, it's good to be here. We'll see where the conversation goes. I thought first maybe you could just say a few words about what got you into philosophy in general and what some of your main philosophical interests are as they stand. Well, um, I guess I first got interested in philosophy when I was maybe 15 or 16. Um, I stumbled upon Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy, and I read through that, um, and I sort of took pride in the fact that I knew all the pre-Socratics, and so I could talk to my friends and like mention Thales or Anaxagoras or Anaximander, and I had to have some, had some like general sense of these ancient figures. Um, when did you read that? Uh, when I was 15, I think. Okay. Um, and sort of the sense that uh, there's this greater conversation that's been happening for 2,500 years, and prior to that moment, prior to reading that work, I had no idea that this conversation was taking place. That really intrigued me. It um, sort of motivated me to um, you know, begin trying to see what human beings have unearthed about all the major branches of philosophy. Um, so, uh, and I, get, I went to, I'm currently going to Whitman College in Washington State, um, and I'm studying philosophy there, and I've been taking classes in all sorts of different areas. Um, I've taken courses in epistemology, I took a course in Course Guard, um, who's a Kantian, a major Kantian today. Um, philosophy of mind, pragmatism, Wittgenstein, um, pretty much a great, a great deal. But um, yeah, uh, so that's, that's where my interest in philosophy came from. Um, I have a concomitant sort of interest in film. Um, I used to um, show films at an art gallery in my city. Um, we had a program called World Cinema, and we used to see films from around the world and talk about them. So. And you worked as a teaching assistant for a film studies course on the East Campus the first term in June, right? Yeah. 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 It was similar for me in terms of finding my way to philosophy. 
I read a book by Simon Blackburn, who's a contemporary philosopher called Think, and it just exposed me to, the, as you said, the conversation that's been going on for over 2,500 years, and it made me realize that there's actually a discipline that studies these fundamental questions. Like a lot of people, I was asking these questions since I was a kid, but I didn't realize there was a formalized academic discipline that actually addressed those questions. Mm-hmm. But the history of Western philosophy isn't as good as it's made out to be, you said, right? I actually haven't read it. I mean, no, there, so the history of Although Western, I love Bertrand Russell. <laughs> yeah, no, no, Russell's, Russell's an amazing philosopher. OG. He wrote on denoting and all these amazing works. Yeah. But um, history of Western philosophy, um, he sort of, he spends, so he, he formulates sort of a narrative that ends with the logical positivists. And it makes sense mm-hmm. considering who, who he was. Um, but. Uh, he, he makes certain moves throughout that make it look like the work is leading up, in a sense, to logical positivism. And this is sort of the solution to all the problems that all the philosophers in the past had dealt with. Yeah. Um, and um, so it, what's also very odd about the work, and I think differs from a lot of um, other works, sort of compendiums about the history of philosophy, um, is he spends a lot of time, as I said earlier, with the pre-Socratics. Um, mm-hmm. And then he spends a fair amount of time with the moderns, but he spends a lot, sort of the bulk of his time, or a tremendous amount of time with the scholastics uh, and debates between people like um, Abelard and, and William of Ockham. Yeah. Um, and, and then the, the sort of um, his contemporaries, so people in logical positivism and so on. Um, you said there's not much on Leibniz and Spinoza. Yeah, he has, or as he not has much as there chapters. should be. Yeah, he has yeah. very short chapters. I don't, know, it's, I don't remember exactly, but it's something like five to ten pages like, yeah. dedicated to Spinoza, which, of course, anyone who's, I mean, if you've read Spinoza, you, you need much more time than that. This is a general... I like Spinoza a lot. Yeah. Just his pantheist views. I know. He's, he's quite, God is quite the amazing. Yeah. And, he, and he develops these <laughs> elaborate arguments um, for, the exist- for the existence of God. It's quite cool. But, of course, his yeah. conception of God's radically different than... Yeah. Um, very his, different. ...than his contemporaries than... Descartes and so on. Okay, so let's start. We said we're going to talk about model realism. We'll talk about ethics, and then we'll just kind of see where the conversation goes. I thought maybe we could start with your views on Kantianism and your fascination with the contemporary philosopher Korsgaard, who you've already mentioned, and who I think is fair to say is the most famous modern defender of Kantian ethics. I'm not, as we've discussed, a card-carrying utilitarian, but I definitely sympathize with utilitarianism more than Kantianism. So perhaps you could just state your case and just briefly articulate what about Kantian ethics attracts you. Hmm. Okay, so Korsgaard um, isn't a strict Kantian. She's not sort of someone who's analyzing Kant's works and trying to make sense of what he intended to say. Rather, she's someone who's trying to build upon Kant's works and take his philosophy in a new direction. Yeah, Um, well I guess first, what is Kantian ethics? Oh, then so we'll go to course course. So what, what is Just Kantian for the listeners ethics? who aren't familiar. Sure, sure. So, so Kantian, Kantian ethics, it's roughly an approach to ethics where a moral failure is to be equated with a rational failure, in a sense. Um, and we, by virtue of being rational agents, um, are capable of acting correctly if we can prevent our pleasures and our desires from impeding our ability to rationalize. That's. Kantianism in a sense. Um, and Kant thinks that he can sort of find certain um, imperatives, uh, what he calls the categorical imperative, that 
we will by necessity act in accordance with if we are acting as rational agents. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Kantianism, I think. Yeah, so, and Kantianism is juxtaposed with utilitarianism, which is another main moral theory, in that for Kantianism, the morality of an act has to do with the intention behind the act. But for utilitarianism, the morality of the act has everything to do with the consequences that are produced by the act. Mm-hmm. And so I guess just to spell out what you said a bit more, one version of the categorical imperative that Kant endorses is what's called the universalizability principle, right? So it's when you're, at, when you're about to execute an act, you ask yourself, what if everyone did this act? Is it coherent for this act to be universalized? So you can ask the question with respect to cheating, say. If everyone were to cheat, then there would be no one to cheat off of. So because it's not coherent to universalize that act, that act would be morally wrong, according to Kant. And again, yeah. the moral wrongness of the act is a, is a matter of irrationality. It's a failure of reasoning. Like I said, I'm more inclined towards utilitarianism just because I think morality is messy. And I think it's unrealistic to think that there's this kind of abstract, coherent ethical system that you can apply to any given situation. I think what something that might be ethically right in one circumstance might be ethically wrong in another circumstance because the circumstances matter, the facts on the ground matter, and utilitarianism really takes into account the facts on the ground, namely the consequences, in a way that Kantianism doesn't. So that's one reason I'm inclined towards utilitarianism. Another reason, as I've also talked about, is it seems to me that a lot of the main ethical theories are kind of implicitly assuming the truth of utilitarianism or consequentialism, right? Some ethical theory that might believe in inalienable rights or um, the categorical imperative, it's ultimately founded in a concern about the well-being of sentient creatures, right? And utility. So it's a concern in the consequences, the happiness and the harms that are generated in the world. And as we've talked about, Derek Parfit makes an example, or sorry, makes an argument of this nature. He says, I forget what I mentioned this quote in class the other day, but if you talk about virtue ethics, utilitarianism, and Kantianism, they're all climbing the same mountain from a different angle. So that's kind of how I view the matter, I would say. Mm-hmm. But that's, I'm just saying all this just to kind of set you up. <laughs> and no, now sure, you can tear sure. down everything I've said. Well, but, so, so, um, so this idea that, for example, it, when, it, when it comes to utilitarianism, um, the uh, consequences of actions matter as opposed to the intentions. Right. Um, and that in turn accounts for, uh, or develop, that, that in turn leads you to have a moral, moral theory that is going to be adaptable to particular circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. That, that idea. Um, and in particular, what's morally right according to utilitarianism is whatever act maximizes utility or maximizes happiness and minimizes pain or suffering. Mm-hmm. But so, so, so for, for the Kantian, the, one of the biggest issues, I think, with, with utilitarianism is that this idea that uh, the greatest good for the greatest number ought to be what we strive for is simply taken for granted. It's simply, accept, it, it's simply accepted that, for some, that we ought to uh, pursue this end. And there's no justification for accepting that. Whereas a Kantian has a form of justification, namely reason. Um, for a Kantian, if you rationalize things through, you'll find that you have to act in certain ways, and you can't act in other ways, um, simply because it's incoherent to act in those ways. Um, regarding the fine-grainedness, so say that um, you encounter a highly particular situation. So um, a Kantian uh, is 
um, in a room with a Nazi and there are Jews um, in the basement. The Nazi, yeah. or the, the Kantian, it might seem, wouldn't be able to lie to the Nazi, right, to uh, prevent the uh, Nazi from fi- discovering the Jews. Right. But um, I, I think a lot of this just has to do with, uh, so what, what ends up happening there is the, the Kantian would say that the, um, the person, the Kantian, um, as a rational agent, can't choose to lie to the Nazi. But the, the situation that the, that the Kantian is placed in is not rendering him culpable for the action, in a sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the, the, the Kantian is placed in a situation where he's, uh, it seems like he has to lie in order to save the Jews. But really, for the Kantian, what, what's happening is the Kantian is placed in a situation where outside forces are compelling him, in a sense, mm-hmm. to lie. Mm-hmm. Or to, to act in a way that looks like lying from the outside when really it isn't. Right. Because there's, there's for a Kantian, you can't reason your way to, to, to lying. So there has to be something else guiding him, or, and that something else is sort of the circumstances that he's placed in. Right. So the immorality of the act is never due to reason itself, but it's due to external forces like desires that are impinging upon reasoning and distracting you from reasoning in an optimal manner. Mm-hmm. Go, circling back to what you said about how Kantianism kind of has a grounding for morality in a way that utilitarianism doesn't. So utilitarianism grounds morality in the well-being of conscious creatures. Kantianism grounds it in reasoning. Aren't those both valid sources of grounding? Well, so, so the difference is that for the Kantian, as, as soon as he's asked whether such and such is a right action, he's already taken it for granted that he's a rational agent. Mm-hmm. And so because I, any answer that he's going to give is going to be utilizing reasoning. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so the Kantian would say that what does it take to be a rational agent? If in order to be a rational agent you have to have certain presuppositions, you have to have certain moral commitments, mm-hmm. then uh, in order to even ask questions about morality you already have to assume certain answers. So it's kind of self-justifying in a way? Kind of, yeah. Whereas for the utilitarian, maybe you could make the argument that utilitarians are secret Kantians because of course they're always rationalizing but um the i mean they're always saying for example that because we need to maximize the greatest good for the greatest number we ought to do this act right but i would say that when you're talking about well-being when you we can take hedonistic utilitarianism bentham's utilitarianism if you're talking about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain the well-being of creatures conscious creatures pleasure and pain that is also self-justifying right because that's an intrinsic good. Like I know immediately that pleasure is good and pain is bad. So I would say that self-justifying in the same way that reasoning is. Again, going back to the stove example, if I put my hand on a hot stove, I'm immediately gonna take my hand off. I know that's bad, right? This kind of gets into the is-ought distinction, which we've also discussed. So the is-ought, I guess I'll just bring it to the table. The is-ought distinction was formulated by the philosopher David Hume. And Hume thought that you can never even with a complete omniscient description of the way that the universe actually is, you can never from that description of is statements derive what you ought to do or how you ought to act. And to me, I want to say that there is no unbridgeable gap between is and ought, because if you're talking about statements that have to do with experiences of conscious creatures, right, pleasure I might be feeling or pain that I might be feeling, those are is statements. And again, 
I can from those statements extrapolate what I ought to do. I know that pain is something I want to avoid and pleasure is something I ought to pursue. So it seems like you can bridge the gap between is and ought. And again, it has to do with me thinking that the well-being is legitimate ground for morality because it's self-justifying. But So, so uh, to address your first point regarding pain, and then I'll address the is-ought distinction. Okay. Um, the, the first point, so for course guard, uh, pain is the perception of a reason. Simply putting your hand on a stove and having a sensation is not, uh, is not, it doesn't become something, the, the pulling your hand away isn't an act done in order to preserve your body until you perceive the pain as harmful to your body in some sense. Does that make intuitive sense? So, so the, oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, so, so the idea is that um, that uh, having a sensation um, is not in itself the same as having a pain. In order to have a pain, you also have to perceive a reason to um, to pull your hand away. Namely, that that's that's the course guardian sort of response to this idea. But that just doesn't seem true to real life. There is no process of rationality that acts as an intermediary when I have my hand on the sto stove. It all happens so quickly, right? There's no cognitive overload that's going on in my mind. It's just an innate reaction. Boom. Mm -hmm. I take my hand off the stove. So I would say that reasoning just isn't in play mm -hmm. in that situation. So so the Kantian course guardian response would be that it's not your hand in a sense. It's not, your body is sort of something that um, you need to preserve in order to pre pre preserve your rationality. But your rationality isn't there when you're simply reacting to the stove that way. Okay. Um, and so uh, the, the, this, this gets largely at the distinction. So if you try to found a moral theory based on that, on just the t this sort of pell-mell reaction to uh, being for, to touching a stove, yeah. um, you're founding a moral theory not involving individuals, on not involving people as rational agents. You're forming a moral theory, just constitutive of, uh, in a sense, um, these very base things that act on sort of act um, in purely causal terms. Right, so for Kantian, there is this explicit distinction at play between the body on the one hand and the person or the will who's inhabiting the body on the other. Yeah. So Kantian ethics, at least for Kant, does depend on some form of mind-body dualism being true. Yes, yeah, well, so, so here's, here's well, to, to some extent, you're right. But I, but I wanted to go get back to this just because yeah. um, it's a, you could, for example, so this is what the Kantian would say. When you, are, when you touch the hot stove and then you react by moving your hand away, that's purely a causal interaction. There's no normative element. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, your muscles tensing up in a certain way as a reaction to sense sort of uh, some sort, sort of elaborate network of sensory fibers, all this weird stuff. Yeah. Um, and the, um, the, the the Kantian would say that because there's no normative force there, there's no you willing to move your arm away, uh, that falls outside of the domain of morality altogether. It's just a causal relationship, a causal interaction in the same way that um, objects colliding with other objects are causal. Yeah, um, but I would say the normative force is built into the feeling of pain itself. It's like we have intrinsic access to the nature of our conscious states. So I know just in experiencing a given pleasure or a given pain that the pleasure is good or the pain is bad. So that's how I'm going to bridge the is-ought gap. I'm going to think that normativity 
is built into the pain itself, or at least we can extrapolate normativity from the mere description of pain or the feeling of pain, given that we have intrinsic nature to these states. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think Kant would agree there. I think Kant would agree that you can extract normativity from the state via rational reflection. Yeah, I guess I just don't understand, like, again, if we have complete, let's assume that we have complete omniscient knowledge about all of the possible, all the actual states of consciousness in the universe and all of the possible states of consciousness in the universe. If we can't decide how to act based upon that knowledge, what else are we going to appeal to? Here you have Kantians coming in and saying that we need some overriding normative force that kind of injects normativity into the world. But I would say that that's unnecessary. I would say that with knowledge of consciousness and the potential conscious states that are open to us for beings like ourselves, that's all we need in order to tell us how to act. And there isn't anything else that we really could appeal to. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so I mean, Korsgaard attacks roughly that idea. Um, she attacks, Let's get to Korsgaard, though. <laughs> sure, sure. But yeah, go ahead. She, I mean, she, she attacks this idea, for example, that simply having knowledge of what is... Say, let, let's assume that mo- moral realism was true. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were things, these like platonic forms of the good, out there in the world. Yeah. And we could learn about them. Say we had knowledge about them. Um, Korsgaard wants to argue that simply having knowledge of these things in the world, these morally good things, is not sufficient for motivating us to act. That the, the obligation to act needs to come somewhere else, from somewhere else. Um, the same could be said for a sovereign who's imposing his will on you. So say a sovereign says, this is the uh, Korsgaard's uh, critique of Hobbesian voluntarism. You have a sovereign above you saying, acting in this way is morally good. Um, even if that sovereign is godlike, he's omniscient, omnibenevolent, omnipotent, Korsgaard uh, wants to say that that still isn't enough to give us some sort of ought. I see. That uh, the, the ought has to come from somewhere else. Um, and the, the idea that, so, so for what, you, what you're trying to argue is that if you can have um, sort of knowledge of what is the case in, to, in its totality, then you can have knowledge of what ought to be the case. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's your argument, right? Yes. So, so here's, 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 I think, one of the fundamental issues here. Whenever we use an ought statement, um, the, uh, the ought statement involves a counterfactual, right? Mm-hmm. It involves something that isn't the case. Right. Namely, what should be the case. Yeah. Um, and we'll it, talk more about that later, modality and counterfactuals. Sure, And the sure. metaphysics of those. But yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have a conversation about David Lewis. So. Yeah. But... Um, so in order to say that it ought to be the case that X, X is a counterfactual, it's not currently the case, mm-hmm. meaning that if you had a totality of knowledge, if you knew everything about what is actually the case, mm-hmm. um, nothing in what is actually the case would be involved in the ought, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the ought has to come from somewhere else. Yeah. So I understood the, the example that you just gave was helpful, right? So I could know that working out is good for me, but still not be motivated to work out. So even if you have knowledge of these moral truths, as you say, you need to get the motivation from something else. A lot of the views that I'm espousing, I mean, some derive from Peter Singer. He's had an influence on how I think about morality. Sam Harris has also had an influence about how I think about morality. In his book, The Moral Landscape, Sam Harris gives this example, and he calls it the worst possible evil example. So you can imagine a world where everyone is suffering eternally, unimaginably, forever. And the suffering never gets better, 
if you think that they're going to get used to the suffering, we can just change it up and keep making it worse. And I believe Sam Harris's point is that, look, is there a better world than this world? And this is a world just composed of is statements, right? Is statements concerning the suffering of conscious sentient creatures. And everyone, if the word bad is going to mean anything for Sam Harris, it applies in that situation. That's bad. And there are better worlds than that. So once you make that basic concession, you've already crossed the is a gap, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what Kantian wants to say is that the, the ought, that he's, he's in a sense, that if the ought's coming from somewhere else. Than he's smuggling knowledge. it in. Yeah, he's smuggling it in. Okay. It's not, you can't, um, and a lot of this has to do with, I think, deeper issues about our acquaintance with the world at all. And yeah. whether or not we can really have access to his statements. Um, yeah. Because it seems like there's often a normative element when we're talking about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, even when we're having a conversation about logic or mathematics, it seems like there's some nascent normativity or hidden normativity. Yeah. Um, and I do, I do want to say, people who are listening might be wondering, why are they making so much hay out of this is-ought distinction? It's just kind of a matter of semantics. It actually is really important, because if you don't think that you can derive an ought from an is, you might think that science is going to be unable to tell us anything about morality, right? Because science is just a discipline that deals with is-statements, how the universe actually is. It provides us a characterization, or it tries to, of the nature of the universe. So if you don't think that you can get ought statements from is statements, you're going to think that science is unable to tell us how we ought to act. So then you might think that, okay, well, maybe science and religion, and I believe Stephen Jay Gould espouses this idea, but he thinks that science and religion are compatible because science is in the realm of is's, whereas religion is in the realm of oughts. So, he calls them non-overlapping magisteria. Yeah, that's yeah. the term. It was escaping me. <laughs> um, so that's why it's important in that respect. You might want to think that science can tell us about morality. And in order to endorse that perspective, you're presumably going to think that you can bridge the is-ought gap. But all that's just to say that this isn't just a matter of semantics here. This is a consequential distinction that we're talking about. But OK, yeah, let's now talk about course guard. So maybe briefly say something about course guard's views and Okay. how they've inspired you. So Korsgaard is one of the foremost defenders of Kantianism. Um, she's lately been doing a lot of work in animal rights, um, and ex- so, which is uh, sort of unusual for a Kantian, because of course Kant thought that animals ought simply to be means to ends. I was one of the few philosophers, maybe Descartes is another, uh, who uh, yeah. didn't think that animals ought to be treated uh, uh, are necessarily treated humanely. Because um, Descartes denied that animals were conscious. He thought they were just fleshy robots. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. So so both uh, Kant and, and, uh, and Descartes sort of thought that it was perfectly, it was permissible to treat animals as means to ends. The only reason that it might not be permissible to treat an animal as a mean to, means to an end is if it's harmful in some respect to rational agents to treat the animals harmful in a harmful way. So, mm-hmm. so an example of that would be um, if you're, uh, if you work in a factory farm or something, or you work as a butcher, maybe you'll suffer PTSD or something. Yeah. Uh, Kant would say that in that case, you ought not to treat the, the animal harmful in a harmful way. Um, right. Of course, for the difference between, I mean, you, you can make an argument here. It, it's, it's, it's vague whether for Descartes and for Kant, animals are actually capable of experiencing pain. Mm. Um, 
So that's that's a, that's a concomitant issue. But for uh, Course Guard, she's she wrote two great works. Um, she's I think she's written a few more now. Um, but the two works that I've read of her are um, one, the sources of normativity, and two, um, self-constitution. Mm-hmm. And in sources of normativity, she attempts to identify what normativity is, where what oughts are, in a sense. Yeah. It's, a, it's a meta-ethical pursuit in the sense that it's not so much concerned with what is good or right, but it's concerned with a broader question, namely, why do we have oughts at all? And oughts manifest themselves in all sorts of places, not just morality. Morality is one place where they manifest themselves, but they also manifest themselves in um, in logic, etc. Where we, we, if you're doing a logic problem, uh, you might want to say that it ought to be the case that this is the answer that we get, as opposed to this. Right. Um, so. So normativity rears its head not just in the domain of ethics, but in other philosophical domains as well, yeah. such as logic. Yeah, practically. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that's right. And I mean, it's it's debatable whether uh, the normativity in logic, etc., is the same sort of normativity as the normativity in morality or not. Could be a case of equivocation, where you're using the same word to mean different things. Yeah, but. Um, it does. It, it points to this, this thing that seems to be inexplicable by appeal to um, his statements. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing that only seems to escape his, his statements. Right. Um, so Korsgaard spends a great deal of her work attacking different attempts to uh, find the source of normativity. Uh, and I mentioned earlier she attacks the uh, moral realist position, the voluntarist position. She also attacks... Um, the reflective endorsement position, which is the idea that something is, um, that the source of normativity lies in our ability to reflect on something and then endorse that thing. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe it'll be helpful just to bring moral realism to the forefront. Most people listening probably have an idea of what moral realism is, but the basic idea is that there are matter-of-the-fact answers as to what is right and what is wrong, and those answers aren't dependent upon the beliefs that humans have. They're independent of our subjective perspectives in some relevant way. And a consequence is that morality becomes an epistemic issue. Mm. Namely, do I have knowledge about what is morally good? Right, so there are these moral truths out there. How is it that we have access to these truths? How do we know what these truths are? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But then, of course, there's a problem because it seems like in order to have a belief at all, you have to have some sort of commitment. Um, And so it seems like if the question becomes, okay, uh, so what should I believe? Should I believe that this is the case? <coughs> um, the, the should there is already presupposing some acquaintance with uh, normativity. Mm-hmm. And so if you try to ground more, uh, normativity in something out there in the world, right. it seems like there's a, a weird circularity or problem here where it seems like you have to at once assume uh, normativity in order to, to access, explain it. In order to access it, yeah. Okay, so that's why Course Guard would think normativity has to be grounded in reason or rationality because any time you try to use reason um, to explain what normativity is, you're already implicitly assuming that you have some acquaintance with normativity. So it has to be rationality that serves as the source or the ground yes. for normativity. Yeah. And for her in particular, it's rational animals, humans. Um, 
there, she spends a great deal of time talking about whether her view is a kind of moral realism because she'll say that there are, in fact, things in the world that are moral, yeah. namely us, uh, moral agents. Um, and that's the source of normativity. Um, right. And, and so this, this becomes a difficult issue. Um, it also, she tends to conceive of morality as an activity. It's something that's done mm -hmm. as opposed to something that one is immediately acquainted with. Mm -hmm. So you can have these rational animals if they're not doing rationality, if they're not reasoning things through, they're not moral animals. They're, they're, the thing that makes them rational or moral animals is the fact that they're reasoning things through. Right, so that's why Kant would think animals are just means as opposed to ends because they're not rational animals, they don't have the capacity to use reason, therefore they're not members of our moral community. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. But for, for course guards, she tries to expand that. She'll say, for example, that pain is the perception of a reason, and if animals are capable of pain, pain then uh, they're capable of their rational agents in some sense. Oh, she okay. develops another... So she kind of offers a broader construal as to what counts as rationality. She sets the bar lower for rationality, so therefore maybe animals are rational and maybe they do deserve moral rights? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And a, a lot of this, so for course guard, a lot of this hinges on this idea that reasons are public. And that's, this is yeah. why we have some sort of obligation to animals. Um, and the way that she arrives at that conclusion is via Wittgenstein's private language argument. Mm -hmm. um, so she, for example, say that in order to um, have a meaning, um, there has to be someone to set it down and someone else to assent to it. Yeah. Um, and um, she'd say that this, the same holds for reasons. In order to have a reason, there has to be someone to set it down and someone to assent to it. And because when we're interacting with animals, we are um, capable of recognizing their reasons for acting. Right. Um, that Even if they might not be? Well, self-aware of the reasons? Well, I mean, it's dubious whether or not they would be self-aware. So, yeah. Korsgaard thinks that animals have some, um, have the ability to act on reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and she thinks that animals have the ability to form beliefs, they have desires, etc. Um, and they can choose to act on one belief as opposed to another belief. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the question of whether act, they're acting on reasons and the question of whether they're self-aware of those reasons that they're acting on are two different questions. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, so where it ends for Course Guard is she, she thinks animals are incapable of, in a sense, stepping back and asking whether hmm. they themselves are, are um, whether they um, are worthy of being treated in this way, for example. Right. Uh, they're incapable of, and they're incapable of forming what she calls practical identities, whereas humans are capable of forming what she calls practical identities. Yeah, I so I want to talk about Course Guard's identity theory, because when we were discussing it the other day, I found it very fascinating. Quickly, just to bring another famous animal rights activist to the forefront, so Peter Singer, probably the most famous contemporary defender of utilitarianism, who's a professor at Princeton. He's also seen as the father of the modern animal rights movement, his book, Animal Liberation, which came out in 1974, I think, is kind of the founding piece of the movement. And for him, he wants to, he has this notion of expanding the moral circle. So he thinks that anything deserves ethical consideration if it has the capacity to suffer. And since animals clearly have the capacity to suffer, or at least most animals do, they are persons just like we are. So yeah, I mean, he's gonna make the bar for personhood even lower than Course Guard because he's not going to necessarily think that 
animals have the capacity to reason or that pain is the percept of a reason, all it takes to deserve moral consideration is just suffering. So anyway, I was just bringing him to serve as a point of juxtaposition there. But yeah, so Course Guard's identity theory. What is her identity theory? So for Course Guard, um, the identity, her identity account um, is kind of a, a way to make sense of Kantianism. Um, and it's, it's sort of a useful way of thinking about some difficult Kantian issues. Um, and what she posits is that um, we are these things that are constantly engaged in this task of self-constitution, uh, namely shaping our, our identities. Um, and identities can take the form of, you could have the identity of a lawyer or the identity of a teacher or a student. Um, and depending on the identity that you've shaped for yourself or you constructed for yourself, you'll, um, you'll, act, you'll take different uh, things as reasons. So for example, if you have the identity of um, a teacher, you might take um, that identity as a reason for, uh, for um, teaching your students philosophy or something. Right. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's roughly the idea. Um, but for Course Guard, she points out that these identities seem largely to be built out of language. Um, and of course, language is built out of meanings, and meanings are basically public, meaning they depend on other people, meaning that our identities largely depend on other people, and they largely depend on contingent facts about our experience, namely the fact that we happen to be living where we are, and we happen to speak the language we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so Course Card wants to say roughly that if you, for example, have the identity of Nicholas or the identity of Cody or the identity of a lawyer, that largely has to do with other people and the circumstances in which you lived. It also happens to be something that you value a great deal. Yeah. And so a consequence is that in order to preserve that identity, in some sense, you have some obligation to preserving others. Um, so this gets at, at the universalizability of Kantianism in a weird way. Yeah, so as we discussed a couple of days ago, I really think that this conception of identity, it strikes me as very similar to the conception of identity that's at play in existentialism. So just to bring that juxtaposition to the forefront, according to existen- the, the catchphrase for existentialism, as we talked about this week, is exis- existence precedes essence. So again, human beings don't exist for, to fulfill some preordained purpose like a knife does. Rather, we just exist and it's up for us to construct our identities and our meaning for ourselves. There is no intrinsic meaning in the world. So when it comes to a personal identity, the existentialist would deny that there are these fixed immutable identities that we come into the world with. Like, no. Sartre is gonna say that we have radical freedom because existence precedes essence. So there are an infinite amount of possibilities that our life could take. And this radical freedom induces this existential angst within us. And what human beings do to alleviate this natural sense of existential angst that we all have from being thrown into existence is we objectify ourselves. And this is where the similarity comes in to Course Guard's conception of identity. So what does it mean to objectify oneself and to objectify others? It means that we apply concepts to ourselves so as to restrict the range of possibilities that are open for us. the number of reasons that we have for acting, right? So instead of asking, what is Cody going to do in this situation? I might ask, what is a philosopher going to do, right? I can see for myself, oh, okay, I'm a philosopher. That's my identity now. Or I'm a basketball player. That's my identity now. So we conceptually box ourselves in in this way. 
And I mean, most people criticize existentialism for being a philosophy of pessimism, but as I noted in class, Sartre thinks that people criticize it really because it's a philosophy of stern optimism. And it's really liberating. It's a philosophy of ultimate responsibility. There is no, you can't blame the fact that you are a certain way for not accomplishing a goal. No, you're only that way because you've chosen to be that way, because you've objectified yourself in that way. So the idea is that you can drop these concepts or labels of, of objectification at any point in time and start actively constructing a new identity for yourself. Mm -hmm. And he thinks that to be authentic, to not act in what he calls bad faith, you need to stop objectifying yourself in this way. You need to stop acting in accordance to these concepts that you've applied to yourself. So instead of acting as a philosopher would act or doing something for the reason that a philosopher would do it, I'm just going to act as I would act. So that's what it means to be authentic. And it's easier said than done, but it definitely seems similar, again, to Korsgaard's conception of identity. And I think Sartre also would agree with Korsgaard that the self is really dependent upon the existence of others, right? So the idea that I could be a self in isolation from many other people, or if I wasn't a member of a social community, that just doesn't make sense. Like the self is this construction that is public and that really comes into existence when you start engaging with other human beings and forming relationships with them. So I just found that fascinating because no, yes. I really like existentialism. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that 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 all meshes, I think, fairly well with with Korsgaard. The um, Korsgaard brings up identities largely to get at the source of normativity, though. For her, right. There's this idea that um, that the, the the thing that's driving the self constitution is basically the normative a normative force, um, and. What, for her, she, she has this idea that when we are forming our identities, it's as if we're wrestling all of these distinct parts of ourselves into order. Mm -hmm. and we're trying to form a uh, uni unified whole, in a sense. Um, so an example would be um, if you're if you're trying to form the cultivate the identity of a lawyer, say, yeah, um, you don't want to act in certain ways. You don't want to say um, not show up to work one day or you to disrespect your client or something. You want to um, act as a lawyer would act. You, yes, ex exactly. You want to act as a lawyer would act, and in order to do that, you um, you'll uh, you'll be confronted with a collection of desires for acting, and you'll step back and evaluate whether or not those desires are the sorts of ought to be taken as uh, ought, ought to be acted on or not. And if you decide that they should be acted on, that's that's because of your identity of, of as a lawyer, and because you want to maintain that identity as a lawyer. Yeah. Um, and Korsgaard thinks that this is sort of a natural, um, natural drive in the sense, in the same way that homeostasis is natural. It's like an, a natural driving mm. force of our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, so th that, that, that's that's largely why she brought up identity theory. Do you have any personal convictions with respect to personal identity? Do you think that there is some immutable self? Do you agree with her? Um, yeah. idea that the self is dependent upon the existence of others and so oh forth. yeah whole, whole, I wholly agree with that so in my view so there is no immutable Nick no okay no well so for me uh, who are you man <laughs> yeah. so so for me for example so this is what's interesting I uh, I value my identity as Nicholas far more than I value my body and I'd be willing to sacrifice my body for my my identity as Nicholas um, you have a nice body, though. Yeah, but, but, but if, but, but if, but if, for example, I was, um, 
I was like, if I was given, I was put in a circumstance, for example, where if I acted a certain way, my identity as Nicholas was harmed. Say, yeah. say that I, as Nicholas, I'm not the sort of person who would murder someone else. Um, if I was put in that position, um, I would, um, I would sacrifice my body in order to maintain that identity. Mm -hmm. um, and this might seem counterintuitive, but I think that this largely gets at the idea that our identities are, um, they, they're, they're, construct they're publicly constructed, they're constructed out of language, but we also tend to value them more than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, now, now to, get, to get at your question, I think, uh, do I think there's anything besides just Nicholas? Do I think that there's some sort of agent in the background, some sort of will in the background? Right. As um, the Kantian would say, there is. As the Kantian would say, yes. And it does seem like there has to be something. There has to be some rational agency, simply because there has to be something to construct the identity. Yeah. Um, now, this gets at controversial issues because you have to ask whether, uh, in order to be a rational agent, you have to be um, able to act on intentions, etc. And, 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 and you might, for example, Respond well. In order to act on intentions, you have to have you have to already exist within a society. You have to already have a sense of self. Mm -hmm. um, that existing outside of society, all you are is a thing that acts um, on uh, on impulses and on desires. Yeah. So two things there. First, when it comes to our identities being public, I definitely wholeheartedly agree. One thing that I've realized recently is that you can't really hide who you are. If you spend enough time around another person, they will come to have an idea of what the contents of your mind are like, right? Because at any given moment, I can prevent myself from articulating some nefarious thought I might be having. But right now, I'm just thinking out loud, right? There's no mediation process for thought. Do I say this thought and then thought to world? Like, no, it's just direct thought to world. So if you're around someone long enough, they will inevitably disclose what they're thinking. Right, what's on their mind a lot of the times. So I definitely think that, you know, the idea that mm, our conscious states are just, you know, we're, we have we're invaluable and we can really prevent people from knowing who we, who we really are. I just don't think that's true. At least if you're going to be interacting with someone on a fairly fairly consistent basis. But when it comes to the idea that there's this indivisible will or rational agent, I think we probably disagree on this. As I've been more indoctrinated within Buddhism, <laughs> I've come to just think that all there really is is consciousness and experiences arising in consciousness. Like we're, this is something I've discussed on the podcast before and we were having this discussion the other day, but it seems increasingly clear to me that the self is an illusion. The idea that there's this indivisible rational agent is an illusion that's born out of you just identifying yourself with your thoughts. You know, there's a certain thought that arises in consciousness and there's this subtle process of tagging that thought as your thought, that's my thought. And so there is no, most people think that there's this thinker of thoughts and there are thoughts. But ultimately, I think if you introspect upon your conscious experience efficiently enough, you can realize that there is no thinker, there are just thoughts. And realizing that can be psychologically liberating in the same way that reflecting upon how existentialist view identity can be psychologically liberating because you realize that you know the fact that you're having a given thought that's not representative of some permanent fact about yourself you know if i'm if i've tended to think bad thoughts and i'm identifying those thoughts with myself it's easy to think oh i must just be an innately depressive person like no 
they're just thoughts and you can change who you are, so to speak, again, by just fostering healthier patterns of thoughts. That insight has been, again, just so psychologically liberating for me. That's why I've gotten into meditation because it's teaching me how to disconnect myself from my thoughts, you know, like knowing when to engage with the thoughts and to tag those thoughts and knowing when not to. But that all flies against the idea that there is this self, right? Like as, as Hume said, when he goes to introspect his self, he doesn't find any self or will or agent. All he finds are just sensations or memories or things that you would associate with the self. So I don't know if you have any thoughts. Well, I that. mean, the, so, so the problem here is it seems like we are constantly trying to create maximally coherent identities. Yeah. It's as if you could think of like a mollusk and its shell. Like uh, we're trying, it seems like it's, it's a... A, a, a sort of a, a decent way to approach the issue would, to think about it would be that you have a mollusk uh, constructing this maximally consistent shell. Um, the shell is going to be, it's not going to have any holes, everything's going to fit in, fit in all of its proper places. Right. This, this seems to be what we're doing when we're engaged in the task of self-constitution. And I think what you're saying is that there's no mollusk in the center. Yeah. There's nothing. There's there nothing is no mollusk. It's just shells all the way down. Yeah. Okay. It's just it's just maximally consistent shells all the way down. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and I think that that's intuitive. And I think you could make the, 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 that argument um, if. And I, I think that to some degree I I agree with you. But I think what what I'd say is that the self is an activity in a sense. It's that activity of shaping the shell. Mm. It's not a substantive thing. It's not like I'm a substance dualist, like Descartes or something. I don't right. think, um, instead, it's that all the time when we use language, we'll label things that only exist um, as motion. So we'll say that, so that person is running or something Yeah. Um, as an activity as opposed to a substantive thing. And I think that when we're talking about the self, we might also be talking about an activity right. as opposed to a substance in the world. Um, and that activity is the the uh, act of engaging in self-constitution. Okay. Um, that, in a, in a sense, is what it is to be a self. So is our disagreement then just a matter of semantics? It's like we both agree there is no mollusk at the center of the shell, but you want to call the shell or the process of <laughs> making new shells or whatever a self, and I just am going to deny calling that a self. Yeah. Okay. And, and the reason I want to call that a self is because there's some unity there. There's okay. the, yeah. the There's an attempt to create a maximally consistent shell, and that shell um, seems to circle over, or circle around something. Right. And, and maybe we don't want to say that the thing that it's circling around is a substance, but we can still say that it's uh, it's as if there's this normative force towards there being a, 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 a self. It's almost as if you could say that I like this analogy. Yeah. The mollusk analogy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you, you, you could you could sort of say that there's some sort of um, that when we are constructing identities, maybe it's because we want. Uh, well, maybe it's because there's this drive towards having a self, mm-hmm. which we don't have, but we push towards that. Yeah. So it's like the shell is formulated around something that should be in the center, but the thing that should be in the center just doesn't happen to actually be there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually exist. Yeah, and I think I think. Korsgaard um, has a view in line with that. Um, yeah. She once again she conceives of of um, rational ag- as rational animals as rational only when they're engaged in the activity of rationalizing. 
Mm-hmm. And when you conceive of it as an activity as opposed to a to anything else, um, then uh, then I think it begins begins to be, be to be more intuitive that maybe there is no material self. Um, yeah. I don't want to fall too deep down the rabbit hole, but this is, I think, opens the door to a reductio ad absurdum to Kantian ethics. Because again, if you're if you're not if you're acting just solely based upon desires and not reasoning, then you're not a moral actor anymore. So going back to the case that we discussed in class, you're talking about someone who's committed premeditated murder versus someone who's killed his girlfriend just out of passion. So there's no reasoning in play there. Um, you might think that. So I mean, you might arguably and justifiably think that the person who committed premeditated murder should deserve a harsher sentence. But you would certainly think that the person who committed a crime out of passion was still a moral actor, and they still deserve to be punished. But for Kant, if reasoning wasn't in play when that crime was committed, the reasoning was dormant, so to speak, then that person is not eligible to be morally condemned. That's right. Yeah. For, for and that Kantian, seems to be a reductio ad absurdum. Well, for the Kantian, the person wasn't even there. The act is being committed. It wasn't even them. It was the desire. Yeah, it was the desire, the perception. It was the. It were outside that seems like forces. a cop out, though. Well, you could, you could say that, but I mean, do we really want to hold people accountable for acts that that they didn't reflect on, that they didn't reason to? Yeah. Um, it it seems like if we say that people are culpable for. Uh, having a desire and not having time to step back and reflect on it, it seems there we wanted to probably say that the reason that they are uh, that, that, that they're not culpable is because they didn't have time. The the the, the real the reason that that or well we we want to say that the act occurred in part because there was not enough time, and that's not a that's not condemning the agent. That's condemning something. That's saying that there's some other factor at play right. that prevented the agent from acting as he should have. Yeah. So you know my views about free will. <laughs> yeah. So I would, I mean, for me personally, I would take it a step further and say that not only, it, so not only is it the case that the person who commits the premeditated act can be held morally responsible, but the person who committed the crime out of the passion can't because they weren't using reasoning. I would say that neither of them can ultimately be held morally responsible because in a deep sense, they couldn't have done otherwise than they actually did. Right. So. That's not to say that we shouldn't have a criminal justice system. Of course, we should for the purposes of deterrence, but not for retribution, right? There shouldn't be this deep sense of getting back at them or uh, doing a justice, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I think that notion of retribution, I think that's the correct word, flies out the window once you deny that people have free will. But again, we should still punish people uh, for deterrence. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think I largely agree with you, but the the thing is that I think that if, for example, um, well, so, so I think it depends on the level at which you're thinking. If you're thinking at a very low basic level, you can, prob- you can probably make the claim that at base everything is deterministic, can be reduced to causal laws, etc. Yeah. Um, and my views about there being no free will doesn't depend upon the truth of determinism, mm-hmm. to be clear, right? But yeah, keep going. Well, I mean, the, 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 what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at is, is roughly the idea that um, for all practical purposes in a court of law, etc., we talk in terms of identities yeah. and in terms of reasons. We don't talk in terms of the um, 
photons bouncing off the walls, causing some sort of, <laughs> you know, cause, causing some sort of link interaction in the, this person's mind that caused them to act this way or something. Yeah. Um, There's some possible world where we talk about it. Sure, sure. There is. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to Lewis. Um, but the thing is that uh, it seems like if we can, it seems like because we're so, because in a court of law we, we talk in those terms, it doesn't seem like too much of a stretch to talk in terms of culpability and more of moral culpability. Yeah. That's taking for granted that it, we can reduce that, that at a very basic level, yeah. moral culpability doesn't exist. We can still talk in those terms at a far higher level, at the level we are acquainted with. I'm fine with that, yeah. yeah. And I, I would think, agree with that. And I, and I think that this largely gets at um, the fact that if we didn't talk in those terms, if we didn't talk in terms of reasons, culpability, desire, etc., um, we wouldn't be able to manage, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because being able to talk in these terms is what allows us to participate in the public sphere of mm-hmm. giving the game in the game of giving and asking for reasons. Yeah. Without without um, without that sort of language, we can't participate in the public sphere. Do you know Patricia and Paul Churchland? So uh, I know Churchland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so th- these are famous. They're famous philosophers of mind, and they verge on being a limitivist about consciousness. So they really think that consciousness doesn't exist. And I think, according to them, or at least one of them, we should really, in the future, look to move away from using psychological terms like beliefs and desires and reasons, and we should really just speak in terms of what actually exists. And what actually exists is just the brain states, right, that give rise to these desires or beliefs. So we should just speak in terms of those brain states and actually discard these, the psychological terminology. So. Um, I think you would be very unhappy with that approach. I mean, first of all, that doesn't seem realistic. No, and second of all, I don't even think it would be desirable necessarily, mm-hmm. even if beliefs and desires in some deep sense can are just brain states, right? Or consciousness is in some deep sense, nothing over and above the brain. No, no, I, 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 I uh, yeah, I wouldn't be satisfied with that. I mean, Mostly because of the, the immense difficulty. Yeah. Um, so say that you, you're able to reduce what it is to be a, a self to causal relations or something. Right. Th- then, because of course, in ordinary discourse, we also, when we're talking about self-employed terms like identity and will and so on, you also have to re- reduce all of those mm-hmm. notions, and it becomes an immensely complicated web of reductions. Um, yeah. And then, and then, uh, and and of course, no one can reasonably parse that data mm-hmm. um, in order to pr- make predictions about a person's behavior in the future. Um, I mean, unless you had access to a massive supercomputer or something. But in that case, it seems like. Why take that circuit, uh, sort of difficult route? Why not just take a more direct route and just employ the language that we do, mm-hmm. um, the folk psychological terms that we do? Because it seems like that was the phrase I was looking for. Folk yeah. psychological terms. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like um, having a theory of mind and being able to make predictions about people's behaviors by drawing from that theory of mind um, allows us to interact in the public sphere. In a mm-hmm. way that's that having um, a strictly um, sort of scientific account wouldn't. Right. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to talk about Lewis now and the metaphysics of modality? Sure. So I guess I'll just say some four things, some things to bring the issue to the forefront. Um, so modality, when you're talking about modality, you're talking about possibility and necessity, 
as opposed to what actually is. You're talking about what could possibly be the case and what is necessarily the case. The diamond in the square. That's what, that's what Kripke calls them. The diamond in the square. In, in modal logic, you use a, a diamond for, yeah, yeah uh, for, I think, diamonds necessity and uh, squares possibility, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so I want to talk about Kripke. But So one fundamental question that you might ask when you're thinking about philosophical questions about modality is, how do you know whether some statement concerning modality is true or false? So let's take a statement. I Cody could possibly be in the MBA, right? Or I could have possibly been a doctor as opposed to a philosopher, right? Cody Turner could have possibly been a doctor. How do we determine whether that's true or false? Because usually something is true, a proposition is true insofar as it represents that the way that the world actually is, right? We only have direct evidence to what is actually the case. I can never experience what is possibly the case or what is necessarily the case. I mean, this is a point that uh, David Hume made when he's talking about causality, right? We don't actually experience the necessity of these causal laws. We actually just ex experience correlations. We see one thing happening and then another thing following from that. And we infer from there that there has to be some necessary causal force. But as a matter of experience, all we are able to be in contact with is what is actually the case. So that's the question. How do we know whether some modal statement is true or false? And you have Saul Kripke coming into the picture here, right? He's a very famous philosopher, the City University of New York now. And he makes use of this, I think this derives from him, but this framework of possible worlds. So a possible world you can consider to be a maximally consistent set of propositions, as we talked about. So it is true that I possibly could have been a doctor because there's some possible world in which I am a doctor. So now the question isn't, how do we know whether model statement is true or false? But the question now shifts to, okay, a possible, what is the metaphysical status of these possible worlds, right? Let's take a possible world is what answers the first question. But now we ask, what is a possible world? Is a possible world something that actually exists? Is it something that doesn't actually exist? And so this is where David Lewis comes in with his theory of model realism. So for Lewis, and I'll let you say some things about him, but just to briefly introduce it for Lewis, he thinks that these possible worlds concretely exist, right? Every possible world actually exists somewhere that's spatio-temporally isolated from our world. So we can't travel in space or time to get through these worlds. It's kind of like just like an alternate dimension that exists. You might think this is crazy. That means any possible world that you can imagine, a possible world where pink elephants are flying on acid, that, like, that actually exists in a concrete sense. Again, there are two kind of realist stances you, could, you might be able to distinguish when you're talking about possible worlds, right? There's the idea that possible worlds exist in some abstract sense, so that's mobile realism. Yeah. 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 So you can talk about that. So you, we can distinguish abstract realism from concrete realism. And abstract realism would be, you know, the like someone who's a realist about mathematics or the forms, right? These possible worlds, they really exist, but in an abstract form. Like it's a proposition that exists in an abstract form. It doesn't have any concrete reality. Now, David Lewis's Modal realism is a more robust form of realism, according to which the possible worlds really exist in a concrete sense, in the sense that our actual world exists, not just in this abstract sense. Okay, I'll, I'll let you say 
Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of his, so his, his reasons for modal realism, I mean, largely hinge on uh, the fact that he thinks that they accord, that taking modal real, realism to be true as opposed to ersatz modal realism um, accords better with the principle of parsimony, Occam's razor, that it doesn't require as much explanatory uh, power. It doesn't require as much expl explanation. Mm -hmm. um, in order to explain why we're able to talk about possible worlds that don't actually exist, uh, it seems like you have to appeal to all sorts of elaborate um, sort of uh, machinery happening happening in the conceiver's mind, etc. Whereas if you can just postulate that they, 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 they exist, it seems more direct. Um, and, and we have somehow direct access to these. It seems more direct. Um, so, so, I mean, this gets at a, another interesting issue, namely, how do we have access to these possible worlds that are spatiotemporally isolated from one another? Right. And this gets at the conceivability problem. So it seems like our access to possible worlds largely comes from our ability to conceive of them. Mm -hmm. But is conceivability a guide to possibility? Is it possible for us, for example, to conceive of impossible worlds? Or is it possible for us to conceive uh, or is it, are there worlds, possible worlds, that we can't conceive of that we are cognitively close to? Right. Um, those, are, those are interesting. They're less strictly metaphysical issues than moral realism, but they have to do with our acquaintance with possible worlds. Yeah. So, yeah, I, just want, I want to quickly back up. So, because I think what you said about why David Lewis endorses modal realism is really important. Because one of the biggest objections to modal realism is what's called the incredulous stare, right? You're telling me that any possible world I could potentially conceive of actually exists out there in some alternate reality and it kind of Rick I don't know if you've seen Rick and Morty but yeah. Rick and Morty kind of assumes the truth of model realism the idea that um, in, in all of the infinite amount of possibilities that exist actually exist somewhere out there um, so then Lewis's response as you meant as you note to this incredulous stare objection is that look it's the most parsimonious like this framework of possible worlds is so helpful and answering the question of what modal statements are true or false, right? It's true if there's a possible world in which it exists. It's like something is possibly true if there's some possible world in which it exists. It's necessarily true if it exists in all possible worlds, right? Mm -hmm. So it's so helpful, this framework, in trying to make sense about the metaphysics of modality. Given that it's so helpful, you know, in order to it, for it to really do its job, we can't just say that possible worlds is just a way of talking. Right, it, we actually have to buy into the idea that they actually exist if we want it to be as helpful as we think it is. Yeah. So it's just more parsimonious. There's that, and then there's the additional fact that it seems like we spend more time talking about or talking in terms of modality than we do in in terms of of um, of, of is statements. So this gets at the difference between or alethic statements. So there's this distinction made between um, alethic and modal statements. Mm -hmm. um, where um, uh, modal statements concern counterfactuals and what isn't the case, what's possibly the case. Right. Um, um, and um, um, well, the, 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 sorry, uh, they, they had, sorry, never mind. I, I'm confused there. Um, so the thing is that um, the so yeah so for uh, David Lewis. Um, there's this general idea that things that possible worlds exist, that they're all spatiotemporally isolated from one another, etc. Yeah. The question becomes how do we become acquainted with these? That's maybe conceivability. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Lewis wants to say that um, that 
conceivability provides us access to these possible worlds, etc. Yeah. Yeah, and another thing, I really, so I really hate this incredulous stare objection, generally mm-hmm. speaking. You get to, like, as you know, I have sympathies towards panpsychism, mm-hmm. and this is another, the incredulous stare, stare objection is wheeled in as an objection to panpsychism too, right? Panpsychism being the idea that consciousness exists at the fundamental level of reality, or everything is conscious, right? That's just so unbelievable. It's so counterintuitive, therefore it has to be false. First of all, I think philosophers just give too much epistemic weight to intuitions, right? Intuitions didn't necessarily evolve to reliably track truth or reliably track the way the world actually is, right? We evolved to help pass our genes down to the next generation. So given that fact, why is it that philosophers and people in general trust their intuitions in the way they do, right? This is a common phrase, just trust your intuitions. Insofar as something is counterintuitive, that provides a reason to think that it shouldn't be trusted or that it's false. Mm-hmm. Why? Why Why should we trust our intuitions to begin with? That is a fundamental philosophical question to me that philosophers don't grapple enough with. And it really cuts against the idea that the incredulous stare objection to either panpsychism or model realism carries any weight. Oh, sure, sure. So, so the idea roughly would be that, uh, yeah, prima facie, when you first encounter it, it seems crazy. Yeah. But maybe uh, that's just because of certain culturally ingrained biases. Or maybe it's because uh, uh, we, we evolved to have to reject ideas like that. We, we evolved in such a way where uh, we take certain things for granted and we reject other ideas. And so when we encounter modal realism, which is quite prima facie, uh, um, absurd, there's a plurality of worlds and they all exist spatiotemporally isolated from one another. Maybe the reason that we find that absurd is just because all, our, all of our, 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 we're principally acquainted with the actual world. Mm-hmm. So our perceptions and so on, they, when perception is a guide to actuality and it seems like at a very young age we're perceiving before we're thinking about what should be the case or we're thinking about counterfactuals. Yeah. Um, and so it seems intuitive to think that maybe we just because of how of the sorts of things we are, namely things that have um, that perceive before developing these abilities, these abilities to think in more abstract terms, we might find um, modal claims quite quite crazy. Yeah, um, my 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 principal acquaintance with Lewis comes from his work on fictional truth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, and and roughly he he wrote a, a work called Truth and Fiction in which he tried to develop an account of what it is for a statement to be true in a given fiction, um, or fictionally true. Um, and the, he, he developed this formula, in a sense, for finding out whether a claim is fictionally true, and it, it goes roughly as follows. Um, you might say, for example, it is fictionally true in The Hobbit uh, that all the grass is made of plastic if the worlds where the grass is made, or if the worlds where the grass is made of plastic and everything explicitly stated in the fiction is true, are closer to the overt belief worlds of right. the fiction's community of origin, right. um, than the worlds where everything explicitly stated is true, but the grass isn't made of plastic. Okay. Um, and this gets at, I think, why the, it's all of these other works that Lewis wrote, mm-hmm. employing uh, sort of modal ideas. Yeah. that feed into his more general argument for modal realism. Mm-hmm. Because you find, oh wait, I, I can use these sorts of uh, explanatory, these tools to explain very, very complicated ideas that previously I wouldn't be able to. Right. Um, but in this case, um, he, he, he applies that to a set of 
um, claims and people uh, have taken issue with his formulation but um, yeah. yeah so well first of all we keep talking about all these famous figures that some people might not know about David Lewis he's one of the most famous philosophers of the 20th century he endorsed his model realism that we've been talking about in one of his most famous books on the plurality of worlds but yeah getting back to the fictional truth thing so there is one position on the metaphysics of modality that's called fictionalism Right, so we've already distinguished between these two kinds of realism about possible worlds. Right, there's the concrete realism, David Lewis's model realism, and the abstract version, which is from some philosopher who I'm not aware of. Who endorses that. Yes. So then, fictionalism would be the idea that so fictionalists would, with respect to modality, would agree they are realists about model truths. So they think that there is a a real answer to the question of whether. I could have possibly been a doctor, for example. But they're not realists with respect to possible worlds. So they deny that these possible worlds are real in any abstract or concrete sense. They're just kind of fictions that we're telling ourselves. But they think that nevertheless, we can be realists about model propositions, even though we're not realists about possible worlds. So how does that theory, fictionalism, fit into what you just said about fictional truths? So so what's interesting here is that uh, Lewis is employing modal, uh, his theory, um, which is modal realist, has me- these sort of metaphysical foundations of modal realism right. uh, in order to develop an explanatory account of what it is for something to be fictionally true. Fictionalism is an attack on the metaphysical assumptions mm-hmm. that Lewis is, all- is making. Mm-hmm. So um, fictionalism doesn't directly pertain to what makes something true in a fiction. It's not about what makes something true in a given fiction. Rather, okay. it's about what are, whether what whether the basic assumptions of modal realism are true. Um, so there are theories that are talking about two different things, even though they both involve the idea of fiction. Yeah, and you, you could maybe get into this odd embeddedness sort of scenario where you say, well, let's say that uh, possible worlds talk is fictional. Right. Then can we develop an explanatory account of possible worlds talk, as Lewis did? Yeah. So we might be able to say, for example, that um, it is true within the fictional possible worlds talk that um, that um, a world that um, that it is ne- necessarily the case that X, if X, in all possible worlds, because right. uh, it is necessary the worlds where it is necessarily the case that X in all possible worlds. And um, and everything else within that given fiction are true or closer, etc. The, the formulation I gave earlier. Yeah. You could you could develop this weird embeddedness, but then you get get into That's certain issues. Yeah. So what what exactly do you mean by fiction when you're talking about fictional truths? Because you have a pretty broad conception as to what constitutes fiction. It's not just like fictional literature, right? Uh, no, no. It's it's. Uh, I mean, literature is one example. Yeah. A fiction is simply a internally coherent. Um, sort of set of for Lewis propositions. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another philosopher, Kendall Walton, who attacks the idea that. Oh yeah, I love Kendall Walton. Of, yeah, uh, um, theory of make believe. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> Kendall Walton. So this is one of the big distinctions between Walton and Lewis. They're yeah. both thinking about fictions, works of fiction, and yeah. that can be quite a, quite a broad area. It can include art. It can include lying, etc. We talked about Walton a lot last semester in my philosophy and film and literature class. Cool. Yeah. My, my research project was pitting Walton against Lewis. Ooh. Yeah. 
Um, and Walton was initially was the person I was originally interested in studying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, Walton wrote Mimesis and Make Believe, of course, mm -hmm. and um, Lewis wrote Truth and Fiction, and they developed these competing accounts of what it is for something to be fictionally true. For uh, Lewis, something is fiction. Uh, fictions are composed of propositions. Propositions are truth evaluable. Uh, they're true or false. Mm -hmm. For uh, for Kendall Walton. Um, uh, there are no propositions in fictions, so when we say something is fictionally true, we're not actually evaluating a proposition. We're not actually talking about truth. Mm -hmm. We're making a move within the game of make-believe mm. by talking about something as fictionally true. Okay. Um, and so we're, we're in a sense, not making a commitment right. to, to it. Yes. Is this what you want to do for your thesis? No, this is this what particular... I did for a research project. Oh, this is what you already year. did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Walton, of course, I mean, there's a certain interesting consistency in Walton's views where he wants to say, for example, that when we say it is true in The Hobbit that all the grass is made of plastic, right. um, that's just a move within a game of make-believe. It's not actually a assertion about the truth of that statement. Yeah, so just briefly, explicitly defined his theory of make-believe. Okay. What is this theory of make-believe? Well, so Walton wants to say, in a sense, he has developed this prop-based theory where, mm -hmm. when you're working, when you're reading a work of fiction, the work serves as a prop within a game of make-believe. The prop, in a sense, um, causes you to have certain imaginings. Right. Um, and those imaginings are um, are that you you don't take those imaginings to be um, truthful or veridical or anything. So the, he has to develop, of course, this elaborate theory of the imagination. Mm. But one, 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 one interesting way to maybe understand Walton would be to think about his notion of quasi-feelings. Yeah. Um, yeah, so wait, just quickly, that's we were really focusing on his notion of quasi-feelings in my class last term. We were talking about it in relation to the paradox of tragedy, mm -hmm. which is why is it that we find pleasure in tragic events when they occur in a cinematic context or a fictional context, but why do we not find pleasure or ostensibly not find pleasure in events when they occur in real life. And one way to get out of that seeming paradox is to endorse this notion of quasi-feelings. We don't actually find pleasure. When we're watching something in fiction, the pleasure that we get, or a tragic event in fiction, or cinema, the pleasure that we get isn't real. It's not a real feeling of pleasure. It's a quasi-feeling of pleasure. Yeah. So and, that's and one the quasi, way. The quasi-feeling of pleasure, it comes about from um, Imagining that the events unfolding in the fiction are giving rise to the feeling. Yeah. So like there's this embeddedness yeah. here where yeah. you're sitting uh, in the theater and you're watching this. It's a placebo essentially. Yeah. It's a placebo effect. It, it yeah it, roughly it's kind of yeah it's kind of a placebo effect. But what's weird about it is that there's a certain distance on your part. Yeah. So it's like you're sitting there in the theater, you're watching someone kill someone else, and then you're imagining yourself reacting to the events. Right. As if you're actually afraid. Mm -hmm. And you and and then from that you th there arises this quasi feeling mm -hmm. of of fear. Mm -hmm. um, so you're not reacting directly to the events that you see on screen. You're reacting to the imaginative reconstruction of the events, almost. Yeah, where you're a participant in the game of make believe. Wait, right, right. So so normally when we're sitting in the play or watching a film, we tend to think that only the events unfolding on the stage or in the film are. In the make-believe, mm -hmm. we don't think of ourselves as active participants in the game of make-believe. Right. But for Kendall Walton, we are active participants in the game of make-believe. Right. And uh, and we are make-believing fear, and that make-believing fear is giving rise to fe to quasi-fear. Right. Yeah. The only thing to fear is. 
quasi-fear mm-hmm. itself. And a lot of this has to do with <laughs> certain assumptions that he largely draws from Hume. Mm-hmm. Um, namely, this idea that in order to actually have a feeling, a real, like in order to actually experience fear, you have to have beliefs about the object right. of your fear. And, um, and, and you have to be, there has to be some rational grounding in a sense for your fear. This, that's not strictly Hume, but um, this is kind of an interesting notion. Um, that is interesting, yeah. Because it ties feeling explicitly to cognition. In order to feel the feeling of fear, you need to have this propositional attitude, namely a belief. Mm-hmm. And it has broad explanatory power, so this would account for why when you're sitting in a theater watching um, a tragedy, you don't stand up and go, stop the person on the stage from killing the other person because, because somebody stop him yeah exactly because you're not ever experiencing real um real sadness if right. you're experiencing real sadness for walton you would do that yeah you'd be motivated to action yeah so okay circling back to lewis for a second i just wanted to briefly talk about his counterpart theory mm-hmm. so Right, so he thinks these possible worlds, again, his model realism claim, these possible worlds, again, concretely exist. Every single possible world that you can come up with, right? A possible world where there's nothing but a blue chair that resembles that chair. Like, that's all there is in the world, right? Or a crazy possible world where there are flying pink outfits. All these actually concretely exist in some alternate reality. So then the question would be, okay, going back to the proposition, I, Cody Turner, could have possibly been a doctor. So are you saying that, would Lewis be saying then that there's some possible world in which there's another me, in which I am a doctor? That seems absurd. How can there be, there can't be, I forget what the name of this principle is, but there can't be two distinct things which are one and the same thing. Like that doesn't make sense. What's the principle? Do you remember? Um, like in the principle of indistinguishable something. Oh, yeah, like yeah. Li- the, the indiscernibility of identicals. There we go, yeah. Uh, also Leibniz's law, maybe. Yeah, Leibniz's yeah. law, the indiscernibility of identicals. But So it doesn't make sense to be to say that there's actually me in another possible world. So what David Lewis says is it's not actually me, but it's my counterpart. So it's a person that is sufficiently identical to me. right? There's a person in another possible world that looks like me, that behaves like me, might be almost identical to me in every single way, but it's not actually me. But he says that we can make sense of the claim, I possibly could have been a doctor because there's some counterpart of myself in a possible world that is a doctor. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on the plausibility of well, counterpart theory? Well, I mean, so, so Kripke would contest that by saying that when you refer to, when I refer to Cody, I'm not just referring to you in the actual world, but I'm referring to Cody in every, in, in the counterparts of Cody and all these other possible worlds. Because of his theory of rigid designation? Yes, exactly, right. yeah. Um, whereas for uh, for Lewis, um, you uh, whenever you refer to Cody, I'm referring to Cody in the actual world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the lot, I mean, there's, there, are, there are major problems, um, I think, with both views, but um, yeah. the, debate, the debate between the two is, is quite heated. Um, I think, um, I tend to, I mean, taking, uh, here's, here's one of the interesting issues. If, for example, you have counterparts in other possible worlds, and each of those counterparts differs slightly from you in the actual world, right? Um, it seems like there has to be some line, at some sort of distant possible world, where the counterpart doesn't resemble you at all, right? Yeah. Um, but, but where there are 
where there are successively closer possible worlds connecting you to that counterpart. Right, there's some possible world where there's someone that almost qualifies as a counterpart, but isn't quite a counterpart. Not uh, yeah. like me enough to count as a counterpart. Yeah, and then, and then in principle, you could go beyond that. You could say, you could probably develop, you could develop a set of uh, sort of a gradation where you, in the actual world, are Cody. Mm -hmm. um, your counterpart in one other world are Cody with uh, like a mole on your on your arm or something, and then right. one other world you're Cody with two moles, and then in some distant world you're world. you're Cody with like just a giant mole. Right. And, and <laughs> this then, is all then I am. the question is: Is that still a counterpart of Cody? Nah. No. I'm not that dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so this gets, this gets at a rather difficult issue in, in the counterpart theory. Like, when do we when right. do we want to say that someone is no longer a counterpart? Yeah. Yeah. It's all it's all very fascinating. Model and also model doesn't model realism cohere with the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics maybe well no so so that well there are two separate theories they may there may have been some overlap but uh for modal realism um the the idea is that the worlds are spatio-temporally isolated there's no causal connection between them right to, so just to clarify to say that the worlds are spatio-temporally isolated is to say that there is no distance that you could travel in space to get to the world there is no distance, so to speak, you could travel in time to get to the world. It doesn't exist in the future or the past. It's completely isolated, again, like an alternate dimension. Mm -hmm. But yeah, keep going. Yeah, it's, it's like an alternate dimension. Um, but uh, I mean, can sort of the, the figures, the driving forces behind uh, modal realism, Lewis and so on, and the driving forces behind talk about modality generally, uh, they they were different, I think, than the many worlds hypothesis in physics. I think that these these are two ideas that happened to arise in different in two different domains, and they yeah. happen to parallel each other in certain respects. But they serve different functions. I mean, modal logic, and and uh, and then many worlds sprouting out of that, largely serves a function of, 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 in, in understanding modal claims. It's a, it serves yeah. a, it, it's a it serves a philosophical function in evaluating certain a certain class of claims, whereas um, the many worlds hypothesis in physics it doesn't it wasn't it didn't develop in order to make sense of a set of claims per se. It's maybe it developed in order to uh, make sense of more general. I don't, I don't know very much about uh, the many worlds hypothesis, but I'm, I, yeah. I think one of, one idea is that um, isn't it that um, it helps us explain why um, it, it helped it accords better with our intuitions that things couldn't have just sprouted up as they did with all of these laws in place and so on uh, in order to give rise to sentient life just pell-mell it's more intuitive to say well right. it just so happens that of one of the many worlds the laws happened to be in place just so they could give rise to sentient life right so if this was the only world that existed it would just be something akin to a miracle that the conditions of this universe happen to be fine-tuned that they support life. But if this is just one world among an infinite number of worlds, potentially, then it would be, I mean, it's, you know, there would be some, there would be worlds where life arises, and it just so happens that we're in one of those worlds. And of course, the fact that there are beings like ourselves that are able to ask these questions guarantees that we're in one of those worlds. But yeah, I don't really know much, too much about the many worlds interpretation either, but so the idea there is that the worlds wouldn't be spatio-temporally isolated, right? They actually, it's just one big universe, and these other many worlds or possible worlds exist out there, but they exist within the scope of the universe. They don't constitute an alternate dimension. 
I think. Perhaps, yeah. It, uh, I'm not sure though. I plead is, ignorance here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, neither of us are physicists, so yeah. the thing is, this is above our pay grade. Yeah, it is, it is. <laughs> the, thing, the, thing, the thing is, what's interesting about the uh, the many worlds is th there are, of course, intuitive parallels. It seems from a fasci. Yeah. And you could maybe make the argument that philosophers talking about plurality of worlds and modal logic and so on arrived at this conclusion via uh, strictly logical means. They were thinking about um, the mm -hmm. logical implications of certain a certain class of propositions. Right. And then maybe you could make the argument that these physicists arrived at this conclusion via empirical means or some other sort of method. Mm -hmm. uh, in that case, I could see someone down the line making the argument that maybe there's some kind of convergence from these two different domains. Yeah. Um, which would be an interesting idea, but it's completely speculative, and I don't know very much about um, the quantum mechanics and all of this, so. Interesting. Yeah, so I know you said you have to leave at four. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, first, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or bring to the forefront that we haven't touched upon? Um, well. If not, I have a question I can throw at you. Well, um, I mean, my research project on uh, fictional truth, I ended up rejecting both um, Lewis and, and Walton. Oh, really? And I ended up taking a third direction. What's the third direction? Um, the third direction is an account of, um, of it's a strictly uh, cognitive account of, of, of in which we conceive of a possible world box in our mind that's sort of equivalent. And we, we roughly postulate that you have different, that, um, that you can have different pro propositional attitudes. You can have, of course, um, propositional attitude. You can have a, you can desire X, you can believe in X, etc. And it seems like we may as well just tack on another propositional attitude, not unlike the other two, namely mm -hmm. uh, having a uh, make-believing that something is the case, where it's neither desired nor mm. held to be true. Oh, okay. And so make-believe itself would be a kind of propositional attitude, not exactly. just a particular example of the propositional attitude belief. Exactly, yes. Because it seems like in order to de desire something, you're, of course, already existing within the domain of modality. And we, of course, like to relegate desires. Right, because it, you're, you're wanting something that isn't actually the case Yeah. when you desire something, mm -hmm. which is the realm of modality. Exactly. Yeah. And so we, rel but we like to relegate desires to some like primitive level. Yeah. The Kantian, of course, would say that desires are basic. They're, they're, they exist below the domain of reasons. And yet, in a sense, they're quite sophisticated because they uh, already seem to assume modality, uh, certain modal, they already seem to be making modal claims. Right. Um, and so uh, my, my argument roughly draws from uh, two philosophers, Nichols and Stitch, who uh, developed what they call the cognitive theory of pretense, um, where um, you, you can, where belief, desire, and possible world states are just different ways of evaluating propositions in your mind. And what ends up happening when you engage in, um, um, the, when, you, when you're in the possible worlds box, essentially um, all, all of these propositions in your belief box are thrown into the possible worlds box. And then you have something called the updater that comes in and in a sense, oh, to, along, sorry, all of the propositions, so, so here's what ends up happening for Nichols and Stitch's model. You yeah. hear, for example, a stipulation, you are a train. Mm -hmm. That gets thrown into the make-believe box. And then you have all of your beliefs thrown into the make-believe box. 
And then you have something called the updater come along and strip out all the beliefs that don't cohere with the, the original, the proposition that was thrown in that you heard. Oh, okay. And then you have something called the script elaborator that comes in and it um, tries to, it adds new propositions in order to make, make everything internally consistent. Okay. And in order to engage in a game of make-believe, you end up um, having, forming a desire to act like the person that you're, that's, uh, to act like um, a person within the make-believe box. But there's a certain interesting embeddedness, but th this is all irrelevant. Anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, so much of what you said was just fascinating. So I guess, how, just for the listener's sake, how exactly is that different from the, the Lewis's account and Walton's account? Just in well, a few words, how does that, could, your third account, the cognitive account that you just gave, gave, how does that differ from those two? Well, it's different from Lewis's account in that it totally cuts out possible worlds. It just throws out the idea that um, that there have to be, it throws out the idea of modal realism, which is a presupposition of Lewis Lewis's. Right. Um, and then it, it, uh, it has, has a lot more in common with, with Walton's view. Um, right. It, and I think it's actually reconcilable with Walton's view. It's just a different approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just a different way of spe spelling out the make-believe idea. Mm -hmm. um, right. Okay. So I guess maybe this will be the last question we touch upon. But I wanted to talk to you about the experience machine <laughs> and get your views on that. We talked about this in class this past week. But... So Robert Nozick, contemporary philosopher, um, he's not alive anymore, but he has this objection to hedonism, which is known as the experience machine objection. So hedonistic utilitarianism, which is the form of utilitarianism that Bentham endorsed, is the idea that um, the morally right action is the one that maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain. So if hedonism is true, if what has intrinsic value is just pain in the absence of pleasure, it seems like we should go into this experience machine. And the experience machine is a machine that is indistinguishable from reality when you go into it. And you can pre-program the machine to have any life that you want before going into the machine. So it's a kind of matrix, but you can decide how the matrix is going to be for you. If hedonism is true, that would suggest that you should plug into the machine if ever we were to create one, right? Because that the machine is going to ostensibly maximize pleasure. Mm -hmm. And the objection is that Intuitively, we all think, no, I don't want to go into the experience machine because people want people value more than just pleasure and pain. They also value truth or knowledge or being in genuine contact with reality, right? This is why Neo and Morpheus care about um, freeing people from the matrix because these people are just diluted at a mass scale, right? So I just think this is a fascinating thought experiment because, I mean, well, first of all, it's becoming more and more relevant as virtual reality becomes more sophisticated. Maybe the experience machine is actually coming. But what are your, what do you think about the experience machine, if anything? Well, I think on the one hand, you could take a quite cynical view and you could say <laughs> that it doesn't really matter if we are in the experience machine or not. Uh, in both cases, uh, there are strict limits to reference. Um, it's not even clear that we're capable of referring to things in the world. Um, so um, and, uh, here, this gets at a kind of interesting um, a, a, a argument. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if I should. So roughly, there's this idea that if you're refer, if you're, 
put in a situation where you're languageless and you're faced with an object in front of you, say a trash can, and you're trained to say trash can upon encountering that object. Right. That's not referring to the trash can. That's just acting on a stimulus response relation. Mm -hmm. And if at base all of our language is rooted in these sorts of stimulus stimulus response reactions, yeah. then you could make the claim that if whether or not we're in the experience machine, um, we're never actually referring to things in the world. We're never actually acquainted with things in the world in any deeper way than just being disposed to re respond to them in certain situations. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and so the, the argument would roughly be: so I'm seeing, so I'm seeing a trash, I'm I'm perceiving, quote unquote, a trash can in the experience machine, and I'm perceiving a trash can in actuality in the real world. Yeah. Um, in both cases, my only acquaintance with the trash can is this predisposition to respond. Yeah. And um, is is there really anything different? Do I really have any other any deeper access to the trash can? Right. It seems like you could make the argument: No, it's numinal. Whatever the trash can actually is is totally numinal. It's beyond the domain of conceivability, um, and we're cognitively close to it, whether or not we're in an experience machine. So yeah. That makes intuitive sense. Yeah, no, that makes intuitive sense. And for my intuitions, my intuitions diverge from a lot of people's here. I think, I mean, depending on the circumstances, maybe you would go into the experience machine. I mean, one thing to point out, well, as you point out, first of all, we might not be in genuine contact with reality at all. And you came at that by appealing to reference, as you did just now. But you might also just, again, appeal to, uh, appeal to evolution or something like that and recognize that, you know, we're in touch with a certain color spectrum. Other animals see different colors. Other animals have an increased sense of hearing that we don't. So you can question how much of reality is actually get, getting in to our consciousness given the way we're evolutionarily wired, right? Mm -hmm. um, but also you, just recognizing that everything is ultimately a matter of experience, even our valuing truth, right? You don't want to go into the experience machine because you value being in genuine contact with reality that itself is an experience, an experience of thinking that you're in genuine contact with reality. And you would have that experience in the experience machine. So and then you, know, you could also appeal to Nick Bostrom's simulation argument, the idea that we're, so Nick Bostrom is an Oxford philosopher, and he gives this argument that we're, maybe we're living in a simulation or a kind of experience machine right now. Very briefly, the idea would be that we would develop the requisite computing power in the future to create what he calls ancestor simulations. An ancestor simulation is a computer simulation that's as fine-grained as reality and indistinguishable from reality. And once we have this computing power in the future, we would be able to create an innumerable amount of these ancestor simulations. So as a matter of probability, it would be more likely that we're in a simulation right now as opposed to not in one. Um, but yeah, I know you have to yeah. go we've run to the end of our time it was a fun conversation though yeah it was uh thanks for coming on man yeah. i appreciate it yeah thanks thanks for having me it was a um it was cool